Welcome to the Jesus Famous Podcast with Nate Holdridge. I'm Daniel. I'm one of the producers here for the show, and today we have a special episode to bring you. With Easter right around the corner, we want to use this episode as an opportunity to bring you a special Easter message from Pastor Nate. As we mention in every episode, our podcast exists to see Jesus honored, glorified, loved, esteemed, appreciated, adored, revered, and followed. Jesus famous in your everyday life. And all that is possible because of his sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection that followed. So we hope that you enjoy this special Easter message from Pastor Nate. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event in human history. If it occurred, God is real. Jesus is him. The Bible is true. Heaven and hell are realities. And Jesus makes the difference on whether you go to one or the other. Additionally, by its own admission, Christianity is a pointless exercise if Christ did not rise. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So if it happened, it is God breaking into our world giving us hope that a glorious and resurrected future in his forever kingdom is possible through the work of Jesus. If it happened, it is God yet again answering the cry of man that he reveal himself if he is there. If it happened, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So we must discern and heed his every single word. But if it did not happen, Jesus and the teachings of his church ought to be quickly discarded. Without the resurrection, there is no point to Christianity. As Paul said, our faith would be futile. That said, I think it is understandable why many cannot believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It is, at a face value, illogical. People do not normally rise from the grave, especially not like Jesus did. He was not merely resuscitated. Resurrection means so much more. He didn't just come back to life. No, he came back to life in the same body in which he died, but that body was transformed into a more glorious version and it would never die again. It had not been resuscitated, but resurrected and his resurrection promises resurrection for all those who believe in him. But it is insufficient for someone to say that they don't believe Jesus rose from the dead because people don't normally rise from the dead. That's the whole point. Christianity is so radical and so life-changing and demands so much and promises so much that it should not be based on something normal. It should be based on something abnormal, something special, something supernatural. 
And since Christianity leads to a final and forever resurrection of its people, it is appropriate for it to be based on Jesus's resurrection, the first resurrection. Now, in our modern times, there is no serious debate about Jesus's existence. His is one of the most easily validated lives of antiquity. It is also widely believed that Jesus not only lived, but that he was crucified and that something after Jesus's death propelled a group of people to align themselves radically with him. And that group, we call them the church, immediately began to spread throughout the known world. Their spread did not begin lifetimes after Jesus's life, but right after his departure from the earth. In other words, the earliest spread of Christianity was not due to a legend about Jesus that developed hundreds of years later, but as a response to what a group of people had seen and witnessed with their own eyes. Now, these historical events, his life, his death, and the radical event, something that changed the group of people that followed him, have led to many odd theories by those who cannot accept the possibility that he rose. Some have said that Jesus almost died when he was on the cross, but fainted and then revived a few days later. But it's hard to imagine how Jesus wriggled out of the grave clothes, moved a massive stone, departed from the grave, and then somehow convinced his disciples, disciples to suffer and die for him. Some have said, all the early Christians hallucinated Christ's resurrection. But this is a clear demonstration that they don't know how hallucinations work. Here's a hint. It's not a group experience. Some say it was a legend or a myth adopted over time or that the body was stolen or that they simply went to the wrong tomb or that the church lied so that they could make money from the story of the resurrection. My personal favorite is the twin theory, that Jesus had an identical twin brother. They were separated at birth. After Jesus died, the twin emerged, stole Jesus's body from the grave, and then proceeded to pretend to be the risen Messiah. Now, the clearest explanation for the events recorded in the documents at our disposal is the supernatural explanation. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And in our passage today, I want to quickly point out to you seven clues that lend to the legitimacy of this claim. Now for this, we're going to continue our study in Mark's gospel. We've taken it verse by verse for over a year now as a church. And next week, we'll, Lord willing, conclude our study in the gospel of Mark. Now last week when we were together, we read about Jesus's crucifixion and burial. He'd hastily been wrapped in grave clothes, slathered with 75 pounds of burial spices, and was laid in a tomb that was then sealed and guarded by the Romans. The disciples at this point have scattered. They're discouraged about what has happened. But when Sunday morning came, a group of women who were devoted to Jesus went to his tomb to complete the burial preparations. So with that, let's read our passage for this morning. Mark chapter 16, verse 1 through 14. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, 
Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out, verse 8, and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose, verse 9, early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had, been, who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, verse 14, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. The first clue from this passage that Jesus' resurrection is a factual event is not actually in this text, but is the text itself. You see, the New Testament, writings like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the most well-authenticated documents of antiquity. We are able to compare and contrast almost 6,000 ancient Greek copies of the New Testament, not to mention another almost 20,000 non-Greek ancient manuscripts, to make sure that we are reading what the original writers said. That's around 25,000 ancient manuscripts. Now for comparison, the document of antiquity that comes in second place for the amount of ancient manuscripts it has is Homer's Iliad with 643 manuscripts. 643 to 25,000. The New Testament wins this contest. And the earliest copy of Homer's Iliad is from the 13th century, almost 2,000 years after Homer had died. We are living today almost 2,000 years after the New Testament was written, after Jesus died. And our earliest copies, they come not from now, but from the second century. This means that we have a reliable book. It is, in our English versions, what was originally written in the Greek of that era. And next week, I'm going to get into that a little bit as we address the notation that some of you have in your Bibles about the last 12 verses in Mark. And the contents of this book are astounding. Some people have said that Christianity borrowed from myths and mystery religions and that Jesus' resurrection simply parroted all the resurrection fables in circulation at that time. The problem is 
that there's no definitive evidence for the teaching of a deity rising from the grave in any of the mystery religions prior to the second century, before the events of Jesus' time. No, they all began to shift after Jesus' resurrection and started to communicate resurrections of their own. Now, pagan myths were around that focused on the rebirth of the earth every spring, but no one around during Jesus' time was preaching the possibility of a resurrected life after death. This was new with Jesus. And the New Testament is different than anything before and anything after it. It's not written like mythology, but history. And that's the thing. Jesus' resurrection is either an elaborate hoax, mythology, or history itself. But it's not written like anything else. And there are reasons that it could not have been a hoax. It is history. The second clue that I want you to see, it does come from this passage. The second clue that Jesus' resurrection is a factual event is the stone that covered the tomb. In our passage, the women went to the tomb early in the morning to finish anointing Jesus' dead body with burial spices. They worried in verse 3, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb. Now, the reason that they were concerned about this is that the stone was heavy, perhaps thousands of pounds, and they knew that they couldn't move it with their bare hands. But they didn't really know even the full story. The other gospels tell us that the Romans had put a seal on the stone so the tomb would be tamper-proof and that they set a guard outside the tomb to protect the body. No one could tamper with Jesus' body. So the problem was they couldn't roll away the stone, but also the stone had been sealed and a Roman guard had been set. In other words, there were tight security measures surrounding Jesus' grave. These women could not even temporarily roll away the stone, so the early disciples had no chance of stealing the body of Jesus. The third clue I want you to see, that Jesus' resurrection is a factual event, is merely the empty tomb. Now the women found the stone rolled back when they arrived in verse 4. The other gospels tell us that an earthquake shook the place before they arrived. Tells us about the presence of angels and that the empty tomb then scared the soldiers who ran away. The tomb itself was a man-made cave carved into the side of a rock hill. So the women were able to go inside of the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in white sitting on the right side of the tomb. And the other gospels tell us that he was an angel, one of two. He said to them in verse six, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now in modern times, there are two primary locations that are thought to be possibly the ancient tomb of Jesus. But it's hard for us to be certain. Other religions might venerate the gravesite of their founder, but not Christians. Why would they? Jesus was alive, so they just left the tomb alone. They had Jesus. During Jesus' time, however, the tomb would have been easy to find. The disciples knew that it belonged to an important man named Joseph from Arimathea. 
the Jews knew where it was and the Romans had sealed it and guarded it. They knew where it was. So my point is that if Jesus had not risen from the dead, it would have been very easy for them to verify. All they had to do was go to the tomb, break the seal, roll away the stone, and look. But the enemies of Christ did no such thing. There is no record of any attempt to pr produce a body. The fourth clue that Jesus' resurrection is a factual event is the women themselves. These women were the first eyewitnesses. Imagine their delight and surprise and shock. Three of them were the first to see the empty tomb. And one of them, Mary Magdalene, she lingered in the garden around the tomb and subsequently became the first to see Jesus. John tells us about this in John chapter 20. These women were part of the early years of the church and they could have been interviewed at any time about what they saw and who they saw that day. Now, in our modern times, the testimony of multiple women would count for much and should count for much. But in that culture, here's what you need to know. The testimony of women was not respected. So if the accounts of Jesus's resurrection were fictitious creations of the early church, it would have been much more likely for them to report that men saw the empty tomb first and saw the risen Lord first. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all recorded women as the first witnesses. And I think they wrote it this way because women were the first witnesses. The fifth clue that Jesus' resurrection is a factual event is the disbelief that's all throughout the passage. The women fled from the tomb while trembling and astonished in verse 8. When they reported what they'd seen, the others did not believe them in verse 11. Jesus even appeared in his glorified state to a couple of unsuspecting disciples while traveling on a country road in verse 12. And Luke records this beautiful appearance in great detail in Luke chapter 24. And eventually, these men realized that Jesus was this camouflaged traveler and they went and told the others. But the others, verse 13, did not believe them. And finally, Jesus appeared to all 11 remaining disciples and rebuked them in verse 14 for their unbelief. Now, I bring up all this astonishment and all this unbelief as a clue to the fact of the resurrection because it is not at all how one might concoct a story. None of them are presented as hoping for a resurrection or clinging to Jesus's clear promises that he made multiple times throughout the gospel of Mark that he would rise on the third day. They just didn't believe. And this candid representation of the events serves as another clue that this is an accurate, not a fictitious account. The sixth clue that Jesus's resurrection is a factual event are the appearances of Jesus after he rose. In our passage, he appeared to the women and to the disciples. But there's a hint about another larger meeting as well. When the angel spoke to the women, he told them to tell the disciples to go meet him in Galilee. 
Before Jesus died, he had said the same thing. He told his disciples that he would rise and meet them in Galilee. Paul referred to this Galilean meeting when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom he said at his time of writing are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This means that over 40 days, Jesus appeared alive to his followers. And many people, lots of people saw him. The 500 saw him. The women saw him. The disciples saw him. The New Testament records around 15 appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. And these people were clearly convinced by what they saw because they quickly made the resurrection the foundation of their beliefs, preaching it in the very city that Jesus was crucified. I mean, think about it. If Jesus had not risen, why would they go to Jerusalem immediately, the very city in which Jesus died, and begin proclaiming that Christ has risen from the grave? Plenty of religions have started after their founder died preaching the principles, morals, teachings, or life of their founder, but admitting that they are dead. But rather than admit any such thing, the early Christians, a mere 50 days after Jesus died, went into the very city in which he was killed and preached that Christ is risen from the grave. And many of them became willing to die for that message, a sign that it was true. I say this because some people will martyr themselves for a lie, but no one will be martyred for something that they know is a lie. And these early witnesses had the information. They would have known if it was truth or known if it was a lie, but they knew that what they saw was true and were willing to die for it. Now the seventh clue that Jesus's resurrection is a factual event is what was produced by it. And what I mean by that is the church, perhaps you and me. In our passage, Jesus met the disciples. And as we'll see next week, he commissioned them to tell others about him. And today, all over the world, thousands of churches have gathered to honor and rejoice over Christ's resurrection. Our religion is not based on teachings that we found nifty or helpful or true to us, but on the event of the resurrection. It was monumental enough for the first generation of Christians that they did something that for them was previously unthinkable. They shifted the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose. Since all the first Christians were Jewish, and since Saturday was the Sabbath, and since God had put the keeping of the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments that he'd engraved on stones, shifting the day of worship to Sunday was a huge deal. Something extraordinary must have happened right around A.D. 30 that caused a big contingent of Jews to begin worshiping on Sunday. We know what that event is. Jesus rose. But it isn't only the day shift that stands out. It's the changed lives. You know, Peter changed. All the disciples 
changed. And the enemies of Jesus, men like Paul, were changed. All over the Roman Empire, men and women were bound in darkness, but they were changed. They were brought into the light of the gospel. The gospel went into a world with upside-down beliefs, upside-down morals, and they turned it right side up. As I mentioned earlier, many critics have said that the early church made up the resurrection for personal gain. But I think critics are the ones who get personal gain and notoriety from critiquing or ridiculing the resurrection. The early disciples, on the other hand, they were good people who championed truth-telling. And what they got in return for telling the truth of the resurrection was beatings, imprisonment, and death. Yet none of them recanted because they'd seen the risen Lord. And he had fundamentally changed them and their view of the world. And for the last 2,000 years, Jesus Christ has been changing men and women into his image. Though enemies have attacked, though his scriptures have been hidden, and though his message is the most singularly hated message of all time, his resurrection power still breaks through to change lives. You know, months ago, Pastor Riley and I got together to plan this Easter service. And as creative people often do, uh, Riley asked if we could have coffee at our meeting. And I agreed. So we went downtown and we grabbed coffee from one of our favorite places, and we proceeded to then walk around Lake Elestero in Monterey, talking and dreaming about what Good Friday and Easter services could look like and feel like at Calvary this weekend. And pretty soon as we walked, we came up to the cemetery of Monterey. I asked Riley if he'd mind going into the cemetery, walking through there. It's a serene and sobering environment. I hadn't been in there for years. And as we talked and walked, Riley asked me a question. He said, what's the reason for our Easter celebration? And when he asked me that question, it just hit me. There we were in the midst of a graveyard. Sin for thousands of years had done its worst and had killed people. But Jesus came, Jesus died, and Jesus rose, all so that those who die can rise forever with him. He came to set the captive free, and death was our captor. But praise God, we are set free in him. And I pray that you would let him be famous to you, that you would believe in him, that you would trust in him, that you would accept him, and when you do, I pray that you would then love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that you would let him be the centerpiece of your life, the center of who you are. And then I pray that you would refuse anything else but growing in him, saying, Jesus, I want to learn about you. I want to learn your word. I want to be shaped by you, conformed into your image. And as you are, I then pray that you would settle for nothing less than to share him because he is the answer our world so desperately needs. I know there's a lot of causes and a lot of movements that people get passionate for in our day, but there is nothing and no one as important as Jesus Christ and him 
crucified. He has risen from the dead and made a way for us to have life forevermore. We really hope you enjoyed that special Easter message from Pastor Nate. Nate gave that message in 2021, and we believe that it still holds true and is still prominent for today and today's society. From all of us here at the Jesus Famous Podcast, we wish you and your family a very blessed Easter. And wherever you may be at in the world, we hope that you are able to celebrate in the joy of your salvation and celebrate in the resurrection of our true King Jesus. If you're able to make it out to an Easter service, we really encourage you to gather together with your community this year and celebrate the coming King. We love you. We pray that you have a very blessed Easter.